Melody, I've got a favor to ask. It's always, I'm, it's always just really good to see you. Um, I get so preoccupied here, what's visibly in front of me, and it's getting worse and worse. And I know this is putting things on you that I shouldn't, but I would be grateful if you jumped in at any time for comments and questions. You know that. Um, I don't like the way the virtual separates us in time and space, so I would be really grateful um, if you jumped in. And you'll never hear me say that again. <laughs> No, I will. You already know me. I will. I can't stop that stuff. God, I've got to... If I get to purgatory, I know what half my time is going to be spent doing there. Any... What does she say? When you get to purgatory, she'll be there giving her opinion. Giving her what? Oh. <laughs> yeah, if you're waiting for me, please pray until I, until I catch up with you. Come on, anybody, any prayer requests this morning? David and, and Kay, it's good to see you. Now it's good to see you. Let's start. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you this day and for the gift of yourself through the day. Everything that we've been doing uh, very gradually has been taking us from a logos in the world, your presence here all around us, um, and we're seeing that almost all modern currents of thought take that away, that the world is a blank, purposeless thing, place, um, we don't know where it came from or how it got here or what it's doing and it's just obliterated our sense of an intelligibility to things, a, some light in them that scientists can know them, um, we can use them for our good, we can also use them to destroy us but, but we've called to, to work with nature and make it good to help us um, have better lives. All of that's been taken away. It's like a light has been um, covered up, darkened. And everything we've been reading in the last couple of weeks with um, Matthew and John, particularly John, is that that light is everywhere. We've seen it in the poems. Um, we have a sense of it. Um, hopefully it's making us more sensitive um, um, to see it um, in our lives. Strengthen us, please. Um, we, th we think in the episodes in the Bible where you're healing people who are blind, um, that those things don't apply to us. Um, we're blind. We don't see very well. We don't read very well. We think we do. Um, heal us. Um, give us our sight that we can see you present in all that goes around. So many people imagine, I mean, it's a different thing. Um, they find you when you're not there. Um, give us sight, please, um, that we can um, see you and know the joy of seeing you here. Um, I ask for blessings on all those um, that all of us here carry in our hearts. 
Um, I ask a special um, blessing on Peter and Jane. Um, um, he's received awful news. Um, be with them, heal him. <clears throat> if that's not your will, let all that's happening with the two of them draw them closer to you. Let that be so for all of us. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Yeah, it, I, is it on? Can you not? Can you hear me, David? Can you hear me, Kay? Can you hear me, okay? Can you hear me? Hello. Can you? Okay. Doesn't sound as loud as it usually does. Um, okay. The I'd like to go back and just read. Um, from the two poems that we read last week um, <clears throat> because, or the three of them because they speak so directly to what we're doing Alexis, Michelle, good to, good to see you guys um, you might want to go by the kitchen because the sandwiches are really good, really good I'm going to reread the two poems from Herbert because they are perfect expressions of what we've been talking about. But Christ revealed the kingdom. If we know anything about the kingdom from what Christ shows us in John, it's that God is generous. Yeah? He's generous. He's good. Um, he's a God of love. Um, the people who read the Old Testament otherwise just see him as an angry God. That's a misreading. It's, it's clear can get, God can get angry when people do silly things. He's a God of love. Um, um, and he loved us enough to send his son to undergo a death to answer our sins. And we talked last week about the various aspects of the kingdom that are revealed through Christ. You know, the, each time he says, I am the, um, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, um, I'm the light, I'm the way, that every one of those things reveals something about the kingdom at work. It's not off. He says, um, I am in the Father, the Father's in me, I do nothing on my own, everything I do is the will of the Father. He's making the Father and the kingdom present. So, we get a glimpse of heaven. It's right there in front of us. All of the people around him, the Jewish leaders, were given a chance to know the Father that they said they loved. And what we see again and again is they don't know the Father, that they're missing something. Um, <clears throat> so that's where we've been. Um, the two poems speak to the new heaven and earth. Remember when we read that passage at the end of Matthew, um, all these things will come to pass before this generation passes away and what he had just described were um, apocalyptic things, the nations against nations destroying each other, um, calamities, betrayals, deaths, plagues, um, and he said all of this will come to pass. This fool is about to fall over his Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks. So, um, just a couple of poems to speak to that and to Christmas coming. And the sense that we've had that when Christ went to a cross, a new heaven and earth um, 
um, became a part of our lives. In going to the cross and rising again, he answered sin and death. That order was gone. We're going to see that really clearly in Revelation when we, when we pick up Revelation and go through it. But at least there, at the end of Matthew, um, there was a clear sense that when he died and rose again, a new heaven and earth would come to be. Because that old order of dying um, and sinning was gone. We only had to follow him. And it, I hope it's obvious that that's not an easy thing to do because he's asking everybody to go to the cross, pick up a cross. So, Okay, George Herbert's love. <clears throat> love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing ego slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. But, sorry, would you introduce yourself? I should have done this. Way. Mary brought a guest. And I'm, say your name so everybody knows. My name is Sonia Estrada. Say the name. Sonia. Sonia. And you're a friend of Mary's? You've got to be brave. You've got to be brave. <laughs> Sonia, I didn't say this, but um, we, I don't know what Mary's told you, but we start each class with a poem and notes. If you didn't pick them up, there, okay, they're there. Okay. The second poem is still by Herbert II. This one's called Death. Death out was once an uncouth, hideous thing. So here it is. New kingdom, new death. Is, we should not look at it the way the pagans did. I mean, they could be heroic and give up their lives for, for a loved one or for their city. They constantly sacrificed their lives. The Romans were good at it. So were the Greeks. Um, so death was an ugly thing, but they could find something. Dying a noble death was a pagan quality. That's not peculiar to Christianity. But dying for an enemy in, in an act of self-sacrificial love? That makes death have a different aspect. That's what Christ took on. So we shouldn't be afraid of dying or the death of those we love. Death that was once an uncouth, hideous thing, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst not sing, for we considered thee as at some six or ten years hence, after the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust, and bones to sticks. We looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust which sheds no tears but may extort. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, 
much in request, much sought for as a good. It's a doorway to the kingdom. Um, for we do now behold thee gay and glad as at doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. Therefore we can go die asleep and trust half that we have unto an honest faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. And here's the bleak midwinter, midwinter leading us to Christmas. And remember we talked about that wonderful line, um, heaven cannot hold him. Remember the, uh, the violent bared away? That over and over again in Matthew we saw Christ. So, this, so he starts out he coming here to save um, the lost souls of the house, of the chosen people. He said to the disciples, go nowhere but to the lost souls. He came for the, I'm, I'm the good shepherd. He came to recover his sheep. The sheep are the house of Israel. Um, and over and over again, he's so overcome by the love of these other people, the Gentiles, that he's taken away. And it's, it's obviously, he's, um, he says, I've not seen a love like this anywhere in, in Israel, over and over again. <clears throat> so there's some sense in which heaven cannot hold God back. His love of us is that great. Hold on to that, right? Heaven, it, his love of us is so great, it can't hold him back. Um, in the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship day and night and day, breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore, Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim throng the air. But his mother only in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. At what I, what I can give him, stumble on this, yet what I can give him, yet what I can, I give him, sorry, if I were a wise man, I would do my part, yet what I can give, no. what I can, sorry, <laughs> I'm supposed to read poetry well because I'm doing it all my life, <laughs> sorry, what can I give him, poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb, if I were a wise man, I would do my part, but what I can, I give him, give my heart. Thanks for straightening me out last week. I'm never going to forgive you either. <laughs> oh, thank you, Karen. Um, okay, I want to get to this because this is sort of amazing. Do you have that thing pulled up, Doc? Um, before we... Um, let me see if I can do a very quick review of John. 
just hold on to it, can you, Doc? I'm going to ask you to read it in a second, can you? Um, very, very quick review on John. You know that in the prologue, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was, um, the word was with God, um, and he, he says he is life itself, and he is the light of the world. So he identifies Christ with life itself. That's why God says to the Jews over and over again that his God is the God of life. He, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of life. That's why um, those people that the Jews love are still alive to God, because they love God. If you don't love God, you don't have um, life in you. Um, he associates him with the um, light and says the darkness will not overcome it. If God is all goodness, evil cannot be a positive thing, or it would stand outside of God. Evil is a privation. It's a turning away from God. It's a loss of being. That's absolutely crucial to see. If evil stood next to God, they'd be co-eternal, right? And there'd be no reason not to choose evil. But that's not the way it is. Evil is not a force in itself. It's a privation. It's a turning away from God and losing everything God gave. Satan. Us. So there's no way God won't overcome evil. There's no way the darkness will ever overcome light. Right? I hope that should be crystal clear. Yeah? The darkness will overcome it. John says shortly thereafter after the prologue um, that here is the Lamb of God. He says it that day and he says the next day when he sees him in the street, he points him out and he said, here comes the Lamb of God. So we know that he is the Word, the light of God coming into the world, and he's come to sacrifice himself, to bring to completion the whole Jewish tradition that was centered in um, the Paschal sacrifice. Okay. And the other thing we saw running through John is that Christ is constantly performing miracles and John treats them as signs. Every one of them is a sign of God at work in the world. So over and, here's where I want to go. This is, I just, I just so badly want to underscore this. What we're, what we're seeing in John, more powerfully I think in the Synoptic Gospels, is the light is everywhere. It's there. The Jews don't see it. Lots of others don't see it. Sometimes people hear about what he does, and they come to him in faith, and because they have faith, he heals them. Okay? So the line is there. The kingdom is there. The Father is there. He says over, I am, I am, I am, I am. He's repeating the Father when, when God said to Moses, I am that am. So every time Christ says, I am, I am, he's linking himself with the Father. He's showing the, the, the great plenitude, the great goodness of the Father in caring for his creatures. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the light is there. Now here's what I want to underscore um, before we turn to, um, to Revelation. Last week when we finished, um, we got up to the very end and I want to finish looking at the end tonight. But before we do, I've got um, two thoughts that I want to leave you with. That for me, I'd like to frame everything we do tonight, beginning and end. Okay. Um, 
Here's the beginning. Here's the beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So everything, everything that he made is radiant with light. The death hangs over it, so we don't see it all. But that means every single, um, Mary, that means every, a stone. You know, we talked about this so many times with departures when they, you know, the stone became an image. Everything in life means, even stones. There's nothing that doesn't have meaning. So the wind hover in the Hopkins poems, remember when the wind hover hovers and catches the wind? Or the little four-year-old girl when she pricks herself. The question is, do we see it? Can we, can we connect with what's right in front of us with its source? Do we see? The poets help us to see that. That's why we've been reading them. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was nothing made. That means he's present somewhere in all things. All things have purpose. They have order. They have design. They have beauty. It can be a, butter, it can be a spider. A spider still has order to his life. And you know, there's that wonderful phrase in Isaiah where he talks about the lamb and the lion lying down next to each other. And what, isn't one of them a spider? I'm sure it is. The, the, the spider, the... It's one of the ugly creatures that, that's... Um, hmm? Yeah, it is. But I, anyway, it, I, I only want to underscore the point that everything in life means. The fall is over everything, so we see dimly that it's there. Okay? God made... Christ made everything. He's present there, everywhere. Without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life... And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light is everywhere around us. It, it, by the way, if we read Faulkner, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever get there. But there are these passages when Faulkner is describing the earth. The earth. And he describes it in terms of light radiating up from the earth. I mean, he's the only writer that I know who does that sort of thing. Faulkner, amazing anyway. I want to go back... To, um, and pick up a principle that, um, that we've been emphasizing for the last few weeks. Um, you know that one of the conclusions we came to, or at least I tried to draw our attention to the last couple of weeks, is this. Remember that principle from Aristotle. Nothing gets in the mind that doesn't first get into the senses. I've wanted you to hold on to that. That's a, a pagan principle about how we know. Nothing gets into the intellect that doesn't first pass through the senses. Okay? We can't know things unless something comes through our senses. If our senses are dulled, so are our minds. Um, Keller, who was blind, I mean, there was a moment, and it's interesting to think about what happened when her... When her uh, mentor poured cold water on her and helped her to to conceive an idea it had to come through her senses and when she did she said I can't remember descriptions but she's overwhelmed it's like a door a window open on the world and she could suddenly see um, so nothing gets in the mind nothing gets in the intellect that doesn't first come through the senses that's a fundamental principle of knowledge and I said it against, remember, I said it against the idealist philosophy that began with Descartes and went on through Kant. Because Kant 
and Descartes both say, um, we can't ever know things. All we can know are our own ideas. So the modern mind has been stuck in its head. I hope that's clear. And I think most of us don't even know that, but it's real. Think about the effects if you grew up under that way of thinking without ever reflecting on it. All we can know are our own ideas. We get stuck in our heads. How are you going to argue somebody out of something when they've got in their heads and they're convinced that that's right? They can't, what did they test it against? With a realist philosophy, we should be able to test ourselves against what happens in the world. Because we give our senses an important place. Okay? So that was a crucial principle from Aristotle. Okay? Um, here's what I wanted to go on to underscore. Um, there's nothing that happens in John involving Christ, God, that is not present to our senses. What does that mean for our powers of reason? If we can't reason about anything unless um, it's by means of things coming into our mind through our senses, right? We can note certain things, we can draw conclusions because they, the senses draw or deliver things to us and we can know things about them, yeah? If everything that happened involving Christ was in front of our senses, what does that mean about our powers of reason? Or our powers of faith? Do we just know Christ by faith? No. Thank, who said that? Thank you, Mary. I hope that's obvious. Yes? It, we it, know it by experience. If we sense it. If, if, he were, if everything he did was present to our bodies, and all the descriptions are faithful, and we have no reason for doubting them, that means he was present to our powers of reason. We could reason about him. Faith was not a matter of... Believing in God was not just a matter of faith then. People came to him in faith because they'd heard what he could do. I'm saying this because the Protestant will say our, our, our powers of reason are corrupted. We're all depraved. It's only by virtue of faith. Sola fidea. Faith alone. This is not a small thing. Is that the belief of a Catholic? Absolutely not. So what are, the what are the implications, for a moment, I'm asking this seriously, what are the implications of the belief, the Protestant belief, sola fidea, or sola scriptura? Take the first, sola fidea. What are the implications of that? Faith alone. Traditions out the window. All the traditions from the beginning of, you know, Christ's teachings. Everything. Yeah, what else? Any what does it say about, about sin and trying to live a virtuous life? It almost is like, well, as long as you believe, it doesn't matter what you do. That's actually their, their theory of justification. It's imputed. Justification is imputed by the Protestant. It, it's, it's a covering. Somebody responded to Luther when he made that claim that it's like um, snow being covered up with dung. <laughs> Or, sorry, done cover up with snow, yeah. Um, is that clear to everybody? It's real. Wait, hold on. Just, well, sorry, Karen, let me come back. It, we're not in a mythic world, the Olympians, the Greek world, in the Homeric gods. We're not in a Hindu world, in a mythic world. We're not in a Buddhist world, in a mythic world. This god has come down and has been present to our senses. It's real. 
It's not a myth. It's not like other religions. It's um, sui generis. It's unique to itself. It's a thing of of itself. Nothing else is like it. Sorry, sorry. Flesh that out, can you? I, I hope that's. Well, you can, yeah. It's it's like she said that you live a bad life that say, oh, well, they have faith. Do they really? There's no evidence. Yeah. If, I mean, there can be no evidence. There may be plenty of evidence. Well, and then the opposite works with the prosperity type of um, health and wealth type yeah. gospel yeah. where. They look at a person's life, and if it looks like they're doing poorly, they say, well, they don't have faith. Right. It's very... They're damned, Old and it's worse. Like it's, yeah, they must not be. Good. Yeah. A whole world of reason and rationality, is, and, and all that's rational, the logos in nature, the intelligibility, the meaning of things like stones or birds or flower, it doesn't matter. Wherever we've gone in our poetry, that whole world is gone. The, log the logos in nature is gone. There's no um, consonance between the logos of our minds and the logos in things. For a Catholic, there should be a compatibility, a consonance. We should be able to trust and love nature. There's goodness in it. The Protestant believes that it's inherently bad. I'm going to get to this later when we talk about Revelation because... There, it's really interesting to see the differences between the two ways of reading Revelation. The way a Catholic reads Revelation is very different from the way a Protestant reads Revelation. There are funda fundamental differences in our faith. What about sola scriptura? If you grew up believing scripture only, and so you took away the reality... Is everybody following me? Nothing happened, nothing... Everything that Christ did was present to our senses. So it was available to our powers of reason. We could know that as a fact. It's real. We're not in a mythic world. It's real. Um, and if that's so, we don't just have faith. We have a reason that should be compatible with our faith, that should make our faith richer. Because faith involves those things we don't see. But everything Christ did was present to our sight. I hope I've stressed that enough, if everybody's following. So it would have implications for sola fidea, faith alone. Um, I mean, some of the things you all said are right to the point. Um, it just does away with the whole rational world, in a sense. What about sola um, scriptura? What would be the implications of that? All you need scripture. Yeah, say the what's the guidance? 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 Catholic, yeah, right. That's right. And and I hope it's clear by now from our work together. I mean, you've been hearing me beating everybody over in the head. I um, I don't think we read well so often. If somebody's left to read scripture on his own, how well can he read it? Honestly, without help. The Catholic Church holds on to tradition because that tradition existed before Christ came. It was there when he came, it was there afterwards. There's a lot of help it gives us. So if we depend only on scripture and, and our powers of reason don't work very well, 
we're at a real loss. How much will we get out of Scripture? How well will we read it? If you add sola fidea, faith alone, to that, you're in a darkness indeed, doubly. I hope this is all... So, you know, a couple of weeks ago I spent a few minutes praising everybody because whether you know it or not, there's a great reasonableness to all that you do, and you sort of take it for granted. You know, everybody talks about the Catholic Church as blind obedience, and my God, there's, there's, there's no other institution on earth that protects the resources of reason in nature more than the Catholic Church. More than the Catholic, not any science. The Catholic Church is more present there than anyway. So we should, not be, uh, we should not be abandoning reason or giving it up because of attacks from the secular world or the Protestant world because there's nobody that holds on to the powers of reason that we do. And we've got reason for it because he was present to us. This is not a fictional, fabricated world. It's real. So we should take confidence. We should find a strength in that. In reason, what reason, what reason can do to help our faith. And every one of the posts we've been reading, Leo, John Paul, Benedict, in every one of the works we've read, Fide Oratio, the Regensburg Address, Abolition of Man, Orthodoxy, every one of them has been showing what a wonderful gift our minds are. Yeah? Sorry. I was just going to ask, but you say that if it's sola scriptura, there's no church authority. Don't you have to have sola fidelis or whatever, however you say, but faith alone? Because who's going to say that those works are meaningful or good? Yeah. It is, and it's really interesting. You put it, but let me, let me. I, I mean, that we're talking about some. We could go on and on with this, but to to just illustrate, to give support to what you're saying, I think I've given this example before. I don't know that we'll get to it, but um, when we did um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter at Francis, remember, I I think I've mentioned it before. Um, <clears throat> Hawthorne's going back to the founding generation, the early generation of the Puritans coming here. The two governing principles of the settled, settlement um, um, generation were fide, uh, sola fide and sola scriptura, both. <clears throat> Shortly after they got here, they had a conflict. Anne Hutchinson broke, in fact she was exiled, and, and you know that shortly after that exile they're going to burn witches. They're going to burn half the community of people because they think because they don't go along with their beliefs, they're demonic, they're evil. So that's how dark it can. That's how dark. That's how dark our founding is. My argument is that what Hawthorne does is he he brings a spirit to correct that as a poet. But you'd have to read, we have to read Scarlet Letter together for me to. But I believe that's what he's doing. Um, but shortly after the founding generation got here, they had a conflict. They exiled. Um, Anne Hutchinson because sh she was living her life according to f um, sola fidea, faith alone. She was not going to follow the rules of the conventional body um, because those were external rules, laws, that, that is the things that partake of reason. Her opposition was my faith. I'm, living, I'm the only one living by faith. I mean it goes exactly to her problem. 
Here's what, here's what Hawthorne's showing us in that. In the, in the general, when, when Scarlet Letter opens, Hester Prim, who's pregnant, has got an A on her, if you've read it, you know she's got an A, signifying adultery. She's made to wear it as a badge of shame. And there are five women, and it's interesting, they're women, five women whom Hawthorne presents, and they're all, except for one who's pregnant, who has some compassion. The other four want to hurt her, wound her, kill her. They want to brand it. I mean, they're so spiteful, it's scapegoating. Um, by, by condemning somebody else, it shows how righteous they are. So Hawthorne's showing us that, um, and he admires Hutchinson, Anne Hutchinson, because she broke. Because the other rule is proof of your faith is conformity to the, to the group, to the community. And we've got that same thing today. This is getting ahead of our reading, but you'll see it in Melville, you'll see it in Hawthorne, you'll see it in Faulkner. The Protestant world tends to identify being saved with respectability. Wealth, money, you've made it. That's a sign that you're among the saved. Now, so hold on to that. Father and I have talked a lot about this. One of the dangers of the modern world is that people strive for respectability because it's a sign that you've made it. You're among the saved. Look at me. I'm prosperous. I'm, you know. But in the novel, it, they're self-righteous. They're vindictive. Anybody who does not conform to that is outside that community. We've still got that today. We call it the respectable world in America at large, the large and what we call the... Uh, Adversarial culture, the outside, the adversarial, the, I don't know what you want to call it, but all those people who are doing what they do because they can't stand the hypocrisies of the respectable self-righteous people. That's a division that still exists in America. Yes, still here. So, sola fide, um, sola scriptura are inadequate by themselves. They have nothing um, to turn to in the natural order for guidance, for help. And they have nothing in the tradition of their literature, like the magisterium, for help. Okay? Now, to, to highlight this light that we've been talking about, because I don't want to leave John without... John begins by saying... Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, He was the light of life and um, um, the light of men. So light and life are identified, they're one and the same. So everything that Christ does is to make clear the light of the Father, the goodness of it, okay? Now I want to go to two passages. Um, to underscore them. And I want you all to hold on to this. Remember in the second chapter of Abolition of Man. Second chapter of Abolition. Lewis has just shown that um, the implications of what happens when somebody says, you're not saying anything that's truthful about the world, you're only expressing your own feelings. Remember? Um, because what the modern mind is doing is taking away the objectivity of things outside of us. There's nothing there. The materialist, the skeptic, the you name it, the evolutionist, I mean all of it. We've gone through that in Chesterton. There's nothing objective really anymore. 
So the opening chapter was his argument against those people who said, all we can know is our own subjective feelings, <clears throat> and they're going to construct a new world around that. I don't want to go back, but it's put in simple terms, that was our argument, okay? Here's how he starts the second chapter. The practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it, abolition of man. If we follow those um, precepts out, um, we end up destroying ourselves. That's his conclusion, the end of the first chapter, remember? But this is not necessarily a refutation of subjectivism about values as a theory. The true doctrine might be a doctrine which if we accept it, we die. No one who speaks from within the Tao could reject it on that account. And he, 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 he quoted that Greek line that, remember I told you about, came from the Iliad? And enthe fe ke olisun, something like that. I mean, like Greeks 50 years old. Enthe fe ke kai olesun. Um, and remember, and I want to go back because this is so important. So he's here, he quotes this passage from the Iliad. Right after he said, if we pursue this, we die. The passage that he quoted is taken from those of you. Imagine how hard I'd be if we were in a freshman class together. Because I would be giving, I would be, at this point in the class, I would be giving kids quizzes on the Iliad, which we'd studied four months earlier. <laughs> I'm kidding. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Close to that, but not. Um, in the Iliad, it's in, I think it's in books. 17. Patroclus has just asked, you, we've done this so you know it somewhat. Patroclus just asked Achilles for his armor because the Greeks are dying. He puts on the armor and goes into the battle and when everybody sees Achilles' armor, they're terrified. They turn. But, um, Achilles, last thing he says to him, do not go to the walls of Troy. That's left for me. And he does, and he dies. Remember, Hector kills Achilles, and he puts on his armor. Sorry, Hector kills, I'm Patroclus, sorry, and takes Achilles' armor. Okay, I hope, is everybody, am I, okay? When that happens, the tide shifts, the battle turns, there's a storm cloud of dust, because imagine on a plane with two armies fighting each other. Aias stands up and he says, um, this is Zeus's responsibility because the, the Greeks have this sense. It's, think about uh, Boethius. The Greeks have this sense that there's nothing we do that doesn't involve God. God's looking over us. He's never not. He doesn't sleep. So the gods are always involved. That's one of the beauties of Homer. He shows the gods are always, that's one of the reasons the modern skeptic hate, hate, hate Homer. But I stands up and he says, we've got to get a message to Achilles. Patroclus is dead and the battle's turned. The Greeks now are going to get destroyed. They're going to get pushed back to the ships. Aya stands up and he says, we've got to, we've got to send a messenger. How, but I don't know who to turn. How, what can we do? He's lost. And he makes this appeal to Zeus and he says, if we're going to die, let us die in the light. Told you to remember that phrase. That's that phrase from Lewis. If we're going to die, let us die in the light. The light's been given to us. Yes. So we can cry out. We can make that same cry with Aias. 
Because it, they, they were pagans. There's something instinctive in us that wants to die in the light, to have everything clarified, that there's some meaning to life. Not die in the darkness. Is everybody following? So hold on to this notion of light at the beginning of John and put it together with all the I am's. Because over and over and over, Christ is saying, the Father's here. Life, life is here. He's going to take it to a cross and die so that we can have that light and that light. Okay? Now hold that thought. Okay, I know I'm putting a lot together, but Suzanne and I saw, I was going to say this, I've got to, after I stop, I've got to, um, Suzanne and I were watching a movie a couple of nights ago last week called Carter. So about a, um, I grew up in Oakland, California, right next to Richmond, and and I played basketball when I was younger. McClyman's was the big powerhouse in Oakland, and um, Richmond wasn't as good as it came to be during the time when this guy was coaching. Coach Carter, a black guy who played at Richmond, returns years later to coach these kids, and they're out of, out of control, just out of control. They're all enabled. It's one of the most amazing critiques of a black community that I've ever seen. He's black. The whole black community rises up against him when he closes practice down because the kids don't make their grades. All the parents from the audience just shouting him down. Wanted, they wanted to fire him because they were going, if they don't have basketball, what do they have? Take that away and they've got nothing. What's the obvious answer to that response? How many of them are going to make pros? When basketball is over, what do they do? I wish that I wanted, didn't make that argument, but I just, you know, it's implied. But they're all saying, take basketball away. What meaning? That's all they live for. If that's all they live for, when it's over, if you put that kind of emotional intensity into something and it's gone, what do you do? So I loved the movie. I, I, I put off, I just didn't want to see it for the longest time, but I finally watched it and I thought it was a one, and really, it's a, it's a wonderful testimony to a coach who had the courage to stand alone and ask things of kids that other teachers would not. Um, so he, he makes his presence felt. He tells the kids to be respectful, to get their grades up, to wear suits and ties on games day, to sit in the front of the class. I mean, he's doing everything he can to make life as hard as he can. The kids want nothing to do with this guy. And um, one guy gets sent home. Um, another guy um, gets sent packing, and later in the movie, he will come back pleading to be back on the team. It, it's an extraordinary story. Carter, Coach Carter. The board has a... So, um, when they get grades, he realizes that the kids have not been doing what... He, he wrote a contract with all the kids. They had to sign it. They didn't live up to their end. They'd been skipping classes. They didn't have the grades. He closed the gym and put a lock on the door. Put a, and at that point, Rich, um, Richmond was 16-0. The fans were loving it. I mean, imagine that. I mean, you, it's like football in Texas. I mean, your whole identity is around it. Take football away. What, what people would go nuts in this state. Um, I'd love to see what I'd love to see what husbands do on weekends if football were taken away in this state. <laughs> Wives would have their hands full. Um, he puts a lock on the door. The council calls a meeting. 
to talk about what to do. Um, they're, cr they're critical of him. They tell him he shouldn't do it, to stop. He won't. The people in the, um, in the, the you know, the parents uh, make a proposal to fire him. The board doesn't have the authority to fire, but they, they uh, follow that proposal up, a recommendation up with another one, that they cut the locks and resume practice. And that's what they're going to do. The next day, Carter comes to coach with boxes, or to school with boxes, because he's planning to take all his stuff and go home. The principal comes and says, stay. He says, I can't. This is not why I came. You're asking, this is wonderful. It's a, it's a tribute to the human spirit, the best of it, you know. So I can't, I won't do it. I can't sign off on this because it's enabling. He's saying, he's, he's put his job on the line. He's gonna lose it. Um, he says no. And he carries his box, these couple boxes that he's gonna take to his office and, you know, and put all this stuff in and go. He walks into the gym and what do you think he sees? If anybody's seen the movie, be still. Hmm? He sees the kids. Kids are there The kids are sitting, God bless, the kids are sitting in desks reading. And one of the kids says, there are two, two, two three standout kids, you know, in the group. And one of them says, um, how, how do you put it? Um, they may fire you, but they can't make us play. The kids were standing against themselves. And Carter is almost put to tears. He says thank you to these men, these young boys. And he turns around to leave them to do their study. One of the kids says, we've got this SH to do. You know, coach, it's like, leave us alone. We've got this SH to do. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so faithful to what, you know, the way, the, you know, the way kids are. And, but, they're, but they're doing something they've never done before. It's like they have something to believe in. And then this one kid stands up who was a, one of the best kids on the team and who got chased off by the coach and who comes back begging to put on, get back, be put back on the team because a friend of his was just killed in a, drug thing and he, and he was involved with drugs and he does not he just does not want that life anymore it's like the coach helped him see something and he begs the coach take me back I'll do anything you want and he's there that day sitting with his teammates reading coach turns around Mira I want you to hear this wait one minute I want you to hear this the coach turns around to go and then this one kid that I'm talking about stands up and he speaks these words. Can you speak loud. Yeah, do it. Can you just do it loud, Doug? Wait. Earlier in the earlier in the in the movie, the coach says to the kid. You know, I actually thought about it, making that the movie, but I'm thinking about it. No, the kid. I think the coach says to him, "What's your greatest fear of inadequacy?" Because he's trying to use modern psychology to help get this kid squared away. That's early in the movie, so it's just a line, and the kid is off the team by you know later. And but that movie, that line resonates because the coach puts it to him. What's your, what's the fear of your greatest inadequacy? Is if, is if Freud would do it, you know? And we're left with that. that nothing's made of it. But then in this scene where the coach walks into the gym and the kids are all seated at desks, and the one says, "Leave us to our." SH, we've got, and the coach turns around and leaves. This one kid stands up and then he says this. 
our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were all meant to shine as children do. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we consciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence automatically can I have a duck? I want to read it here with the mic. Did everybody hear that? Let me, I'm going to, if I can give it, because I really want to underscore this. So in the, in the middle of the movie, this kid, I think he's Hispanic in the movie. Um, and so that earlier line of the coach is sort of resonating here, okay? He's not, so the focus is not on your fear of inadequacy. By the way, he got this line from a woman, I think, who was dealing with drugs and depression. And she read this book. You can go online and look for this in the movie Carter. Um, she was dealing, I think, she was dealing with drugs and depression and read this book on miracles. And she said it taught her how to love and it turned her life around. And this is a quote from that book. So the kid is quoting it. I know, I know a kid who does this, not this quote, but... We met in the gym when I was shooting around one day, and he gave me this long quote from Aeschylus. Sometime I'll give it to you, but quoted the whole thing. Um, this is, he stands up and he says this in front of the group. The group has no reason to respect him for his intellect because he's been screwing around everywhere. Okay? He stands up and he speaks these words. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful. God. Lewis and Chesterton say the same thing. That our deepest, the joy is almost too much for us. It's easier to live in depressions. Yeah. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. If we're going to die, let us die in the light. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your plain small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were all meant to shine as children do. It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. All things are made through him. Without him was nothing made. And as we let our own light shine, we can consciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. If there were one word that I could use to capture John, it would be light. And that light now is going to carry over in Revelation. But it's a light almost too bright for us because it's dealing with final things. If things weren't complicated enough, <laughs> let me stop for a moment. Any, I want to get to Revelation. Thanks, Doc. I want to get to Revelation. Any questions or comments? Um, I'd be glad for questions or comments, particularly offline. <laughs> Partic
particularly offline. Would you get out of your would you get out of your private world for a minute? Any any comments or questions? <laughs> Come on, I know you guys have got something. It's, this is a lot and it's wonderful stuff. No? No? Holy cow. I can't believe this. Wow. Good. <laughs> um, when it comes to light and letting me see things, it's to me it's the Holy Spirit uh, making me aware of something. Maybe something that I've seen a thousand times, but all of a sudden I see it in a different light. And especially in trying to understand Scripture. So I always equate the Holy Spirit with light. Yep. Yeah. Remember, he's the light of Christ. I mean, he is the spirit of Christ. So, and remember those that quote from, they're all one with each other. So. Kay, do you have something, a question? Anybody? No? Heather, I can't believe. You and Alexis are at the same table and you're not, the two of you are not feeding electric sparks off of each other? Okay, I don't want to press. Well, in the Advent season, I was just, it's just a silly reflection, but preparing for Christ and like his birth was announced with the light of the star. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and only I mean the wise men saw it. Who else did? I mean, what a wonderful gift to them to have that light. You know, it's um Okay, before we start, I just on a personal note, I meant to start with this, but um but I just get um Melody, any questions or comments before we turn to Revelation? Okay, okay. Um, this is a personal confession. I, I think probably you all suspect this. I don't know. But I think it, every once in a while, I'll, when Suzanne and I are going home, I'll say, what do you, what do you think they're getting out of this? I, I, I tend to be probably too, too conscientious about, I mean, I always have been as a teacher. I think there's a fault in it in some ways. I, I mean, you know from my notes and, you know, how conscientious I am and so sometimes I'm a little bit concerned about what I'm offering to you guys and if sometimes I don't overwhelm or you know something I, I think I told you the story when I gave that first talk at St. Francis when we started with the Iliad we went back to the very beginnings and I and I lined up the epics the Iliad the Odyssey the Aeneid with uh, um, Abraham and the and the foundings because the, the the main theme of all epics is a founding and everything's leading to the founding of the 12 tribes, that the resemblances between what I was calling natural inspiration, you know, Homer appealing to the goddess and real revelation, real inspiration from God directly. It's amazing to watch them line up. So I put a lot into that first talk because I wanted to, this is a, you know, 
they're doing literature. They're not doing catechism strictly, but they're coming to this class expecting to find out something about Christ, and they're hearing all this stuff about epics. <laughs> so it was it was all good. It was all good. But at the end of it, the guy who was the uh, who was went on to be the head of uh, it's not the catechetical program, but the RCIA, and that aspect that has to do with the legal legal problems in marriages and things, you know, annulments. And very, very bright guy. Very bright guy. And he came and, and he was taking notes and at the end of the at the end of the class when it was all over I said, any questions? And everybody was sort of quiet. <laughs> Just, you know. And Scott's response was, um, I came for a water and you gave me fire hydrant. I came for a glass of water and you gave me fire hydrant. <laughs> And I thought that was probably a, a good description. What, Mary? One, uh, one, thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. Oh, okay. Because it's about you. Can I go to the Can you wait thirty seconds? <laughs> hey, wait, wait. Here. I, so anyway, I've been, I've been super conscientious. I mean, I think it's a fault. I think sometimes I stew about it more than I should, but that's what I do. But now I'm beginning to worry about your influence on us, not my influence on you. What? You taking this personally? Are you here? Now I'm beginning to worry about your influence on us. Last week, Suzanne was chatting with Mary in the kitchen about the witching hour. And since that moment, Suzanne's, I don't know if, I mean, I'd, I'd never heard about this before, but three o'clock is the witching hour, and Mary was talking about it. And since that day, Suzanne has not gotten through the night. She wakes up, if she wakes up before three in the morning, she'll say a certain, and if she wakes up afterwards, um, I, what do I say about you, Mary? <laughs> That's why I've been sleeping tonight, so thank you. Oh, wow. Now, Wait, I, I'm a, so you passed on your demons to my wife? Is that what you're saying? There's a movie Sorry, you go ahead. I've stopped you three times. You go ahead and do your business. Thank you. <laughs> next week, oh, next time I'm wearing a diaper. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. I heard from a hospice nurse that 3 a.m. is like the highest time for people to leave this life. Is that right? Well, that's not a good sign. That would be just like you to hold on to a fact like that. You know, when Christ passed 3 p.m. and 3 p.m. That's what, oh, God, it's just getting worse. Um, that's what Mary was saying to Doc, I think, and it's one of the reasons that it had such a, a loaded meaning. Um, oh, God. Um, give me a minute. You guys take a break. Give me a minute. Give Mary, give Mary a minute. Oops. Well, 
And you, you, you don't? Mary's back, so we can start. If you take a look at your notes, um, what I've done is given you three weeks of notes. So, are you all here? Are you in class three? No, here, that's why. What I did, because we're going to take a break for a while, is give you notes for three classes. Just so if any of you wanted to read Revelation while you're on break, You've got notes to help you. So you've got notes for the next three classes. Um, I'm not, <laughs> we're not going to do them all tonight, but I just wanted you to have them available so, um, so you can take a look at them, okay? Um, oh, gosh. Um, Yeah. One thing I've thought about in reading Speak up, Heather. One of the things you thought about, sorry? Something that hit me, and it's, this might play into what we're going to talk about with Revelation. But the idea that the Pharisees, they were the religious authority figures. And when they could not, they really couldn't do anything about, because they kept trying to trap Jesus. And they couldn't do anything about him. From a religious standpoint, they had no authority to stop him. So then they went to the secular authorities to take care of him and to suppress his movement. And it just occurred to me this week in reflecting on that, that the same thing is going on today. I think we have religious authorities in the church. 
um, or connected to the church that they, they can't suppress the truth. So instead, what they're going to do is they're going to go to the secular authorities and get the secular authorities to suppress the truth of Christianity yeah. and the truths that she preaches, the uncomfortable truths that she preaches. They're going to them and getting them to quiet yeah. the masses. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that's a legitimate concern, Heather. I, I don't want to get into it because it'll take us into a political mess that I don't want to get into, but, but I think that's a fair description of, of something going on in the church. And, and, I, and I don't want to minimize it, but I'd like to put it in perspective because I'm, I, I, I instinctively find myself um, responding. I tend to be pretty critical of the, what the church does and pastors and what they're not doing. And, you know, but, but I do it with the sense that my faith in the church is unshakable. I mean, that Christ is... I would never leave, no matter what the corruptions were. But um, I, what I wanted to say is that's been true always from the beginning. That's nothing new. Um, I happen to think that it's... that the um, form it takes in our age is a little bit different because of things I don't want to get into right now. But when we get in the middle of Revelation, we're going to hit it head on. And when we get to the beasts and what's going on with them, I'm, I'm going to speak directly to that, but I'd rather hold off on it for now. Before we start Revelation, I want, I want to go back and pick up two things just to, you know, to, to deal with this um, problem of modern biblical scholarship and the modern skeptical mind and, and the fact that research has uncovered inconsistencies in the Bible and problems and so there are so many people within the church, I mean it's touching on what Heather says but it's not going directly to it, but a lot of people in the church who are who belong in what we would, conservatives would call a progressive camp, they belong in the modern camp, they use science, they'll disbelieve things, there are bishops and priests who who are doing things that are contrary to the teachings of the church they're getting censured. Some of them are under threat of being defrocked, and you know, so that stuff is going on, and it's serious. It's really serious. Um, but to go back, just to touch on it um, again, bef bef before we leave the the Gospels to go to Revelation, you know that the end of um, Matthew ends with um, the two Marys going to the tomb. Um, this is just after all those apocalyptic statements on the part on the part of Christ, and um, um, the crucifixion is described in these. It's going to point to Revelation because in Revelation we're going to these sorts of descriptions are going to recur. In Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, we've got. Matthew saying this, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their tombs after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appealed to many. So, and by the way, I, I reminded you of this. I want you to hold on to this. When we did the Iliad, I hope you guys will remember this. When we did the Iliad, remember what happened when Achilles went back to the war. He had on that new armor by his 
It wasn't his mother's armor anymore. It was made for him. He goes back into the world and nobody can touch him. He's accepted death. He's accepted his failings. He's the only man in the Iliad to do that. When he goes back into the war, he has that armor that um, the gods made for him, and nobody can defeat him. He's in danger once by nature, but no man. And when he goes back, Homer describes that moment in these terms. I can't remember if you remember, those of you who go back, called it a psychomachia, a war of the psyche. Everything in nature splits. Hades opens. Souls are coming out from their graves. The earth is shaking. Poseidon, who is the god of the sea, is shaking. The earth is shaking. The heavens are shaking. Why does Homer do that? I mean, we're too far away from the Iliad, but that's what we did when we touched on it. When a man makes that kind of a conversion, a new heaven, new earth. Everything is not the same. Nothing's the same anymore. So that was in Homer. I, I mean, you already know me. You've heard me talk about this, and I'm stunned how close he gets to Christ with Achilles and Odysseus both. That's Homer. But here, now, we're not getting a man, we're getting God. God has taken the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn, the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs were opened, the dead come out, and they, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Centurions say truly this was the Son of God. Something's just happened to change things. 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the sepulcher, and behold, there was a great earthquake. So this is when she appears, the two Marys appear. For an angel of the Lord descended from the heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning. Um... The angel says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen. Come see the place. She goes, um, he tells her he's gone ahead. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, hail. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid, go and tell them, you know. And then it'll end with that last commission um, of, of um, Christ to his disciples. That's the end of Matthew. Um, after his resurrection in John, we've got this description the beginning of 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran over, went to Simon Peter, or she ran, sorry, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Why is he not mentioning his name? Because he's the author of the work. It's John writing, okay? He's trying to be as detached as he can be. Um, and the other disciple, the other one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord. Peter then, Peter and John run as, you know, as fast as they can. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went. So they both run fast. Peter reached the tomb first, stopped to look in, but he did not go in. Then, si or, then Simon Peter came, following him. So Peter follows John. Um, John waits at the tomb and... Peter is the first one to go in. 
Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first went in, and they did not know the they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So this is a shock to both of them. Um, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken my Lord, saying that she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was him. Jesus says to a woman, Why are you weeping? Who do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, I will make, I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, imagine this. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brethren and say to them, I'm, I'm ascending to my Father. And you're. He appears to the disciples three times and then has that meaning on the beach, remember, with Peter, when he says, do you love me? And, and then um, Peter, this is where we ended last week, um, Peter says, you know I love you, you know I do. And, um, and then on, um, on verse 20, Peter turned and saw following the disciple whom Jesus loved. Lord, who is that? Who is it that is going to betray you when Peter saw him? That, that, um, this is the, sorry, let me go back. Peter, Peter turned and saw following the disciple whom Jesus loved who had lain close to his breast at supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? That's John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, so Peter's talking about John, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? <laughs> this is, um, and then he ends by saying, this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true because he was there. So this, go back to what I said earlier. He was present to everything to see it to his senses. So we've got is an eyewitness account, okay? But here's, before we go to Revelation, um, the two different accounts are different, and it leads people to read the Bible skeptically within the church, outside. And, and hold on, just imagine that. Skeptics, secular people, are not going to bother with this much at all, because they don't believe in Christ anyway. People inside the church are. Because, they're, because of their faith. And people inside the church are going to read this differently. They're going to see it as an indication of an inconsistency or a contradiction. They're going to take that far more seriously than people outside the church. So people inside the church are going to have problems with this. Yes? How do we account for these two differences? Do we throw them away then because they're inconsistent? Because some people are going to say... They don't square. Um, this is just evidence that that these are, things are fabricated. We can't believe them. I'm sorry. What are the two? Remember, in the first one, the two Marys appeared. There was thunder and lightning. Yeah. <coughs> Here. Mary went to the sepulchre. Behold, there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended. He's like lightning. Um, he says, don't be afraid. I know why you're here. She sends him off, and she meets Jesus on the way. In the second account, you've got one Mary, and you've got um, Peter and John running. 
and finding that Christ isn't there. And it's interesting the way John presents it because John says um, that he outran Peter. He was the first one to get there, but he waits at the entrance and then Peter goes in first. That kind of detail suggests somebody's either being very exact about what happened or he's doing something to convey another meeting. But the problem is we've got inconsistencies between the two accounts. And in this one, Mary reaches out to Christ and he says, don't touch me. Um, I've not yet ascended to the Father. They're very, very different readings. And if you're in the church, it goes to Heather's, um, you're going to care more about it than secular people. And it, it, give, it encourages people to read the Bible differently and come up with different readings in the church. John also so, so, sorry. so what do we do with this? Uh, John had the two angels in there too, but at a different time. Nor did they descend down and call the earth. So they were both, the two angels were sitting in the tomb after John and Peter left. Well, it says it says it says in Matthew. And listen, uh, Matthew, the, the angels appeared first to Mary. Yeah, but here it says there was a great for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. It was like his appearance. It's only describing one. I'm not expecting. Hold on, I'm not. Ex hold on, I'm not expecting everybody to be biblical scholars here. I just that's not what I'm. But I do want us to wrestle with. I mean, look at these things and and acknowledge them and see what we can do with them. Sorry, Heather, go ahead. Yeah, they no. trying to emphasize different things. But it is possible, I think, a, and I've seen this somewhere, I don't remember where, but there's a way to read it where all of this stuff, you can sequence it. All of this stuff happened. He does appear to me. He appears to Mary Magdalene in John and in Matthew. But just, I think all of that stuff could have happened. But I think here the gospel writers focusing on different parts, just like the rest of the gospel. <coughs> In the sequence. It seemed like Matthew yeah. was always writing all along. John may have sat down later. And wrote, I don't know. There, there is evidence that he did too, that he wrote later. Yeah. Mary, did you have something? Well, to me, I have several things, and I agree with what has been said so far. Uh, but to me, John is more of a first person account, and he's maybe trying to 
show more uh, in depth instead of just maybe what people were thinking or doing. So his first person, whereas Matthew's might be more of a third person account of what people told him, compiling events that happened, and also, and this is important for me whenever I read, all scripture is inspired by God. And if these books are canonical and they're in the Bible, then there's authority there. And I, instead of trying to disprove it, I need to see how it applies to me. Or us. Or us. We should be a little bit less Protestant here and more Catholic. And <laughs> I meant, oh God, <laughs> I meant to say this at the beginning, I forgot, I was going to ask, I was going to ask for, I mean, I'm asking now, and you're, pray for Suzanne and me, I, I meant, that was serious, pray for me especially, please, <laughs> if I get to purgatory, I mean, most of that is going to, Mary, I'm, I, you, I hope you know I'm having fun with you, um, I, I agree, what I want to, I, I don't want to, I don't want to spend too much time here, because I want to get going, but I'm glad to spend a minute here, I'm a little bit nervous about explaining the differences away because it seems to me that's the opposite the reverse mirror tactic of people who want to explain it away by denying it there's a danger in wanting to make everything fit when it doesn't because I think what both of you are saying up to the point where you say you know it all squares and because it doesn't there are inconsistencies there's real and if you if you're afraid to acknowledge them because it, it means somebody's going to condemn the Bible then I think you're you're letting something happen that you shouldn't. Last week when we were describing the differences between John and Matthew, it's interesting, Mary, that you would have picked that up because I can't remember the difference, but, um, but it goes exactly to your point. Matthew is more concerned to describe events. So it's, it's a more third-person mode showing events. John is far more interested in the interior of Christ and is saying, I am, I am, I am, and the reasons that help us see there's something inwardly going on in Christ that's important for us to see. So there's a, the, the word, St. Thomas would use this word. I use it in literature. It's knowledge by connaturality, by sympathy. I think women have it more strongly than men. There's an example in, uh, in, in uh, Shakespeare's um, Julius Caesar where Brutus's wife comes to him and says, is something wrong with you? She knows something's wrong by her feelings, right? There's a knowledge by feeling. It, it, it may not come to perfect clarity, but you sense something there. And there, it's, it's, a, it's a quality to John's gospel. He's so constantly describing Christ in these episodes where Christ... It's, it's like he becomes a major character again and again. So what holds John together are these episodes where Christ is going, I'm in the Father, this is what I'm doing, he's in me, if you're in me. All these things about indwelling mark that gospel. So there's like a consonance, a, an, an intimate communion between him and Christ. Whereas in Matthew, it's, it's more impersonal, it's like somebody telling a story in third person of all these events. And in those events, it's interesting too, I mean, to hold on to your, you know, the perspective you're describing. In Matthew, you've got Christ teaching through parables, telling stories about somebody else. So we're not getting into the depths of intimacy, 
that we're moved into in John. And here, so I'm, I'm really wary about um, trying to make them all fit. Because I think the truth of it is they're all different. And the truth of it is people have different, exactly what you described it. If you had four people on an intersection describing an accident, you'd get four different, very different reports. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It means sometimes peculiarities of a person play a role in how they account for it. And here's where I want to go with John. Um, it seems to me, if you, particularly if you put um, the gospel with revelation, John has a, a powerful mystical side to him. And it, we've talked about it. It, it, it. It's a quality to the Gospel of John that we don't have in Matthew. Because his focus is on I am, I am, I am, I am, in me is the... F the indwelling is taking place. It's the indwelling of the Trinity. I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. If you dwell in me, you would dwell in him. So there's these internal, not spaces, but communions that make up part of what's going on in John's Gospel. He's far more mystical in the way he sees things. And it's interesting to me in that light that he describes the ending the way he does. John beats Peter there. He's faster. He gets there sooner. But he waits. And Peter goes in first. Why? Why? Wait, hold on. And wait, to, 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 to dramatize it. We don't get anything close to that in Matthew. Nothing, nothing like that. It doesn't occur. We get a very, very different account of what happens at the tomb. So it raises the question, I'm really serious about this. Is, is John fabricating to make a point? What do we do with that? We can't just ignore this stuff. What do we do with it? Bob, did you have something? Yeah. Like, to a point, you're right. For years. Iota, iota, down to the last and detail. I remember feeling. Yeah, That's right. What I remember. I remember what I was feeling or what, how someone else was feeling at the time. Yeah. Everything else is kind of vague and blurry. <laughs> <laughs> we know that already about you. <laughs> I'm kidding. God, I need to stop. Somebody pray, please, God. No, it's true, though. Go ahead. But all scripture is inspired by God, and in his infinite wisdom, he inspired it to be, in my opinion, inspired it to be told in different ways that spoke more to people in different phases of life, different attitudes. And different ways of seeing. They're different men. Very, very different men. They're, I mean, to go to all that you're saying, they're seeing things different. That doesn't nullify those things. You've got four different accounts of, a, of an accident. It doesn't nullify it at all. The accident's still there. 
but it does give us different aspects of it. And it's interesting to me that along the lines of what we're saying, there's something to John that inwardly is far more mystical. You know, um, I, I gave you a reading, if you look at the notes. I hope you guys will look at those notes over break. Not now, but um, St. Thomas has a wonderful commentary, and I can't quite square with it. Um, I don't want to go into it right now. But there may be something of the Old Testament, New Testament differences between the two men. You know, uh, the Old Testament was there first. Something of John carrying more of that, getting there sooner. Um, because they were the first ones, but Peter was the one to finally, you know, that, I mean, there just, there may be a lot of things going on there that are worth seeing. And even if it's different, that doesn't mean it nullifies what happened. Just, you can get that off the table easily without going too far to explain it away because you get defensive or denying it altogether. So I would say the difference between the accident scenario and the Gospels, though, is that in the accident scenario... Sorry, in the what? Like, in... in oh, this... Yeah, the, you're right, right, sorry. So in the accident scenario, there really is one truth about what happened. And the people are not inspired by the Holy Spirit to say certain things and leave out certain things or, you know, they're, they're reporting based on their own uh, biases and what they saw, which would be a limited perspective. Um, and some of the things they say may actually be inaccurate. Correct. But in the case of the gospel, can we really say as Catholics that John was wrong or Matthew was wrong, this didn't happen, or this, you know, he was right that this happened and he was wrong that this, you know, to say that this happened because it couldn't have happened because it didn't happen. Like, we can't, that's why there has to be some reconciliation between the accounts because we can't say there's a lie in the Bible about what occurred in the life of Jesus. Yeah, all I'm saying is that reconciliation um, may not be found in the lines of the Bible, even if we know it's there, which would be true of the accident and the intersection. Because I'm trying to hold out. I'm wary of people wanting to explain things away in order to make them fit when they don't. I think that's a danger. Both extremes present a problem. Doing that at the extreme of the believer who wants to fight people who are going to deny it, you know, I think is a mistake. Denying them the way the secular mind does because they're is a mistake. There is a reconciliation, but it may not be available in the language that we've got. It doesn't mean it's not there. And, and by the way, I want to go a step farther. I'm going to say, I'm going to differ with you a little bit. I'm going to say there is one truth to the accident. Not everybody may get to it. You may have different reports, and it may not be fully realized. I'm saying this as a teacher of poetry because I've lived all my life watching kids read poetry, and, and kids will say, it's this, it's this, it's this. And there may be partial truths to what they're saying, but they still be missing, they may be missing What's there? Um, you, you can't deny people's subjective experiences of things, but you can't allow that to, um, to rule out the objective truth of things. You, you know, one of the values, I mean, certainly for me as, a, as involved in literature, in my reading of critics, I, I read critics who just boggle my mind. They couldn't be farther away from the truth of a, and, but I've read so many critics who've helped me because they focused on something that I didn't see and somebody else focused on something. And both of them focused on something that was there even though their attention was different. 
they're not contradicting each other, but they're helping to fill out the meaning of that thing, the poem. I would hope that would be true in our classroom. You know, I mean, sorry, I don't want to call it in our work together. When we did the Iliad or the Odyssey or Chaucer, it's 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 been you know, it's been a real serious principle for me. I don't want to I don't want to make this literature serve a catechetical end. I can't twist it to fit my faith. That's been a principle. I've, I've, every work we've done, I've tried to present it in its own terms and still tried to show things that lots of readers don't see. I love Homer because, I mean, this is beside the point. But what he does with Achilles is, is right next to Christ. It's not in that world, but it's just short of it. It's amazing. It's like he has intimations of it. That's not where I want to go, but I want to do justice to Homer because I think what Homer has to offer us is extraordinary. It'll help us with, if we learn to see things as they are, they will help our mind with whatever we're dealing. So I, I believe there is a truth to that accident. Will everybody get to it? No, but it doesn't mean it's not there. There's a truth to what's going on, and even if there are inconsistencies, doesn't mean that contradicts it. It means there are, as you put it, I mean, you've got four kids or six, and you tell the same story and ask them what it means, and you'll get, you'll, you'll get something that will reflect back on each of the kids. It'll say something about them. But hopefully they're learning to see, they're learning to read what's there, and if they're good, each of them will have something to say that the other didn't that will help fill out that meaning of whatever you're reading. Why else do, I mean, that's so fundamental to our faith. At the, at the root of our faith is we, not I, we. Well, I think it's that, we that we help, that we, each of us can bring something to what we do that will help all of us see more fully what's there. Sorry. Could, and particularly in light of what we've been doing, that even if we don't know and there's a mystery, there's an awful lot we do know, just along the lines. So even now, I don't want to give this up to mystery yet. So much of what all of you have been saying helped deepen the sense of what's there that isn't put explicitly in language, that may be partly a mystery, but our minds are aware that, you know, um, there's this, uh, this is a part of, uh, I think, part of our faith. Where there is mystery, there is more to be known. All, all, God, God, is God is light itself. He, he's intelligibility. He's not a blank thing. He is light itself. So it's infinite. You can never get to the end of knowing him because it's infinite. So he's complete mystery. But that means also we can know something. Wherever there's a mystery, there's more to be known. Because for us, mystery is always intelligible. There's so we're, we're invited, encouraged, unlike a Protestant, 
We're encouraged to use our reason to penetrate the mystery, to, to enter into it more fully. It'll make our faith richer. It'll make our reason stronger. That's a real fight for me. I mean, it, it, you, know, you know that. I'm trying to do everything in my can, my can to keep reason alive and fighting, and our faith too, to not break them apart. Um, there's a lot we can say, we can speculate, and we don't know, but there's, there's things that suggest, so I can say, there's a lot of compatibility, but there are real differences, and I, I, can, I have reasons for explaining the difference, so did you. Um, doesn't mean that we're going to get to a point where we can show a consistency between them so that, you know, we may not. That's okay. Um, because there are fundamental differences between Matthew and John, in the way Mary pointed out. And we're going to see it. Ask this question. Could um, Matthew have ever written Revelation? Could John? Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, they're not the same, but there are, there are affinities between the Gospel and Revelation um, in a way that would not be true if Matthew tried to sit down and do something like Revelation. They're different men. They're different. Their gifts are different. Um, teachers are different. You all know that. Some teachers are going to bring out some things, and other teachers are going to bring out others. It's just, um, it's one of the wonderful things about a community that we can bring a, f a greater fullness to things by the work that we do together. Here, just very, I'm going to, because I'm going to end on time. A couple of comments about Revelation. Abs first comment, absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial, hold on to this. You guys have read Dante, so you're in a position to know something now about Revelation that people who have not read Dante will not know. You know that Dante shows a picture of what things will be at end times. He shows us hell, what the state of hell, the condition of hell for all these people, and he shows heaven. He can do that because Revelation's been written. Let me put it differently. Matthew's in our time. Revelation is end times. Right? Dante's epic, is everybody following me? Dante's epic is the last epic, Moby Dick will get close to an epic, I mean, I'm going to, you know, in Faulkner I'm going to argue, but, but um, Divine Comedy is the last truly Christian epic because it shows the final ends of things, right? We know at the final end, when we get into hell, we see the state that sinners are going to be in, who, there who get there. And in heaven, we see what, what it's like for people who are in heaven, final ends. He's dealing with final ends, right? Um, he's got revelation behind him. What happens in the 16th century with the epic? The novel replaces the epic. What does novel mean? New. New. How often does the modern novel deal with final ends? Almost never. If you step into a Jane Austen story or a Charles Dickens story or a Faulkner or, you know, you're going to be in our time becoming ongoing because that's what the novel takes as its subject. The novel does not deal with final ends. Is everybody following me? Find a narrative, pick any narrative you want. Tolkien, 
You know, Tolkien's in this world. Even if it's a return of the king, it's battles going on here. Revelation deals with final ends. It's showing, it's showing that everything has been decided. It's done. It's over. Now it's a waiting time, but there cannot... Can, is there any mystery about what happened in the battle in heaven between Christ and Satan? None. Is there any mystery about what happened on the cross or resurrection? No. They're over. Revelation shows us, it gives us a story of final ends. So it's outlining all of history. It's all there. How does he, how does he know it? Because Christ did it all. It's all done. We've got a description of the second coming. It's going to happen. Um, and we don't know, you know, where God's decision is with respect to every one of that. That's in God's hands. We can't determine whether a person is saved or damned. It's, is everybody following so one of the most important things to keep in mind when you're reading Revelation is that it's dealing with final things. It's the end of things. It's all done. Now stop and think about this. If you read a novel, do you ever read a novel with that kind of allegorical symbolism? It's rare. A novel tends to use descriptions that are empirical. It's, this happened. She was wearing blue, or her eyes were dark, or she, you know you'll get a very exact description of things exactly as they take place in the world. Do you find that in John? Absolutely not. Everything is 7, 10, 13, 20, you know, red. It's got, everything's described in terms of symbols and signs. So here's the important thing that I would like to leave everybody with. It's absolutely crucial. I mean, you, you know that my position on everything, we have to take the literal level of everything, the surface. The Protestant gets off a surface because he doesn't trust it. We're supposed to trust it. We're supposed to take things literally because the only way we can get to allegorical meanings is through the literal. Take away the literal and we're gone. We're lost. We have no, we have no basis for judging ourselves. John's writing about final things. So he's writing about something that's literally true but he's using a language to fit that experience. It's final things. It's not a novel. It's not this world. Is everybody following? Is that clear? No. You, you've all read Huckleberry Finn or Jane Austen or Pride and Prejudice or some novel, right? You know that in a novel, a writer's describing things exactly as they occur in our daily life. She sat down, she picked up a pen, she started writing. The teacher said something and she started to roll her eyes. <laughs> you know, whatever. Is that what you hear in John? No. He's talking about the seven churches and the bulls and the seals and the trumpets. Okay? Because we're not in the literal world of a novel. We're in a world in which literally things took place and we have to take it seriously. That's what happened. But it's also taking us into another dimension of reality. And it asks for a different kind of language. And that's a serious problem for readers because you know readers read Revelation in very different ways. And it's really interesting to see Protestants tend to read it very differently from Catholics. Why? I don't want to answer that. But I'm saying this. Now here, let me go over some of the things for you just to keep in mind while you read. Colors, number, these are on my notes. You don't have to go there.
colors, numbers, metals, garments, 24, 4, 7, 1,200, 144,000, 1260, Rome, Whore of Babylon, the Catholic Church, beasts, um, the millennialism, a period of a thousand years. Um, all these things mean something. So when John uses language like that, um, he's referring to actual realities, but they're not realities the way we would know them in a novel. Let me just give you a couple to let you, even when Christ in, I think it's in the end of the first chapter in Revelation, he actually, he actually equates things and says this equals this. The word exegetical, exegetical means um, a, a, a principle for understanding something. You know, if you go into geometry, you'd have to learn to, to do this, you have to do this, okay? Christ actually gives us an exegetical principle at the end when he says this equals this. For example, um, the number seven generally signifies a condition of perfection, completeness. It's no accident that there are seven churches. In one sense it means, even though it's seven, it means all of them. He's giving a whole range of what we can do, what he's concerned about, Christ is concerned about in the world. In the opening section where John is sending letters to the angels of the seven churches, he's not just showing seven cities, he's showing all the churches where God's love or his fire, his light is present, but under various conditions from an act of faith to one that's weakening. If you read the letters, we'll, we'll, we'll start when we pick up, you'll see that he's addressing each church and saying, you're doing this really well, but, and then he'll get to a point where he says, you're not doing well at all. You know, he's showing the seven is everything. Um, it's important to see Christ is overseeing. When he, when he writes to the angels, we have to ask, are those the angels overseeing the churches? Are they the bishops? I'm not sure that we can answer it. I mean, people will come up with different... But somebody of authority looking over each one of those churches. Um, remember, when you're reading, um, there's nothing going on that doesn't involve God. He's watching over everything. He's trying to help us all the time. Boethius makes that argument. Nothing exists outside of God. The seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are ministering powers of the Spirit. This is, from, this is from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord, delight. There's the seven gifts of the Spirit. So numbers mean something. And we're meant to take them literally as being real, but also having here, hold on, remember, here's, here's where our levels, we did this with Dundee. There's the literal level of things, the tropological, there's, sorry, there's the literal level, literally this is what happens. Here, let me, let me, sorry, literal level. Allegorical, tropological, the moral, we ought to do this, and anagogical, eternal things. 
So at every moment of life, literally, this is happening. That's the literal level. Tropological is means it's going from an old way to a new way. Okay? Um, allegorical. Well, sorry, allegorical is old new. Tropological is this is what we ought to be doing. And the anagogical is eternally we're either moving closer to God or away from him. So right now in our work together, we are literally here. That's the literal level. The allegorical level is at, that, at this moment, all of us are either moving away from the old person that we were towards a new one or the other. We're either getting better, better in our understanding, better in our faith. One of those is happening. So literal, allegorical, from the old and new. Tropological, ought, is what we ought to do. Are we doing what we should be doing? Are we taking that seriously? And the anagogical is final ends. We're either moving closer to God or farther away from Him. So every moment in our lives, every single moment of our lives, those four levels of reality are going on. In John, his focus is on final ends. All of history is included in Revelation. When we read Dante's Divine Comedy, it's like a novel because he's, he gives us particular instances of things in hell. We see every sin the way it's going to be in final. In purgatory, we see every aspect of purgatory. In heaven, we see the condition of perfection in all of its great variety as it exists as a final end in heaven. He could have only done that because he had revelation. But what he does is he takes that final view into the world the way a novelist does. Like a Jane Austen or a Tom Charles Dickens or you know, whoever. So when we're doing Revelation, um, we're going to be asked to read a language um, describing something in, in terms of final ends. That's not easy to do, but that's what he's doing. Is that clear? Okay, I missed by 10 minutes again. God, it's just... <laughs> Any questions? Nothing gets into the mind that doesn't first get into the, sec the senses. Everything that involved Christ was present to our senses. That means we can understand it with our powers of reason. We have reason to help us. If there's one word that describes John, it's light. That everything Christ did was to bring light in the world. Everything that's created, in some sense, radiates with light. Every scientist, when he puts his mind to work on what is this bug, what is this, he's trying to look into that thing to see its nature, understand its intelligibility. Wherever there's mystery, there's more to be known. Can we use our powers of reason to try to penetrate it, to help us grow in our reason, to help us grow in our faith? Okay? You all have a really, have a, have a good, the rest of Advent. Truly, um, have, I hope the remainder of your Advent is really good, that you live these things, and I hope you all have a blessed Christmas. Okay? Thank you. Thank you, Sister. When are we again? When are we?